702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. We take your calls on 011-883-0702. Your SMS is 31702. Your tweets at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons. And the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Let's get all of your science-related questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Cross. Chris Smith, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm not cross. I'm very happy. I'm, I'm very good. How <laughs> what, are you? What are the big feelings that scientists have to deal with? <laughs> well, you know, I, I was suppressing my anxiety after the first half of the England UEFA match v Germany last night, and then it turned to jubilation by the end of extra time, of course. So we're all celebrating the women's football last night. Oh, Absolutely fantastic. Brilliant match. Absolutely Loved it. fantastic. So that, that was what scientists had to grapple with. A lot of scientists love their footy. And, uh, and so that was, that was a really good turn up for the books because we beat the Germans. I, Shh, don't tell them all. I keep forgetting that you guys refer to it as the footy. <laughs> when you say soccer, I love it, the footy. I'm going to start saying that on end, then I'll blame you. Well, football the... was invented in England, you know. And, and it was called football and it dates from the medieval period and people used to hundreds of, you know, five, six hundred years ago play football, but it, it wasn't quite what we recognize as football today, but yes. it was very much football and very different game than what the Americans have distorted and they call football because that's <laughs> not football. That's just a bunch of people running around with massive <laughs> amounts of gear on, you know, with big egos. And um, we've just got people without massive amounts of gear on with big egos and big pay packets. But, um, no, I mean, the, the proper word football is actually what we play in England. And the Americans had to call it soccer to avoid confusion with their version of the game. One day we must have a conversation about the differences and issues between the UK and the US. Conversation for another day. I could go on a very long time. <laughs> I know you could. <laughs> All right, let's take your calls. We've got Phil in Centurion. Hi, Phil. Hello, Doc. Good, good show. I admire your mind. <laughs> I can't hear Phil, by the way. I oh, seem to be on uh, some kind of other feed. Phil, so just if, hold if on one second. Let's Phil, see if we can. Um, um, Phil, just uh, let's just try again and see. The doctor can't hear you. Give us a second. Phil, try speaking now. Hi, doc. That's better. You, Go ahead, Phil. Me? What can I do for you? Right. Yeah. Good show, and I admire your mind. My question is: What is digital inverter technology? And how does it work? Well, I, I don't actually know what that phrase means. Uh, do you mean as in inverters for take, power supplies? Is oh, that I've what you're referring well, to? I've taken this from an advertisement, from a, um, a shopping advertisement. And it says digital inverter technology, and then there's a spiel about what it is. But this doesn't satisfy my knowledge. I thought you might know more about it. It, it depends what the product is. So can you tell me what product it was advertising? Um, household uh, appliances like tumble dryers, washing machines, and fridges. Right, well, when you have an inverter on something, what an inverter does is it converts DC power into AC power. Ah. The reason that you might need to do this is because if you have got a uh, supply of solar panels, for example, and they are going to put out DC direct current where there is a plus and a minus. And if you recorded with an oscilloscope what the current was doing, it would flow continuously in one direction. This is how power flows out of a battery. And devices which are set up to run on that won't run on its alternative, which is AC, alternating current. 
The reason that AC is used in the transmission of mains electricity is because it's really easy to transform it from one voltage to another because you can run it straight through a transformer and the fact that the voltage is changing, therefore the current is changing, means if you make it go through a coil, you can make a changing magnetic field. And if you have a changing magnetic field, you can induce a current in another conductor with a different number of windings and you can get a different voltage out. But if you have, say, solar panels or something and they're producing DC, then if you want to get that to mains voltage, but it's got to be AC, alternating current, there are two ways to do that. One way is you feed the electricity into something and then you run a physical motor or something that spins round and it will turn the electricity on and off, on and off, going backwards and forwards with the right polarity to convert it into something that goes plus minus 50 times a second, so it's like the grid. The other way of doing it is you can use digital circuits, an oscillator, a microchip, which has in, inside it a special oscillator that would digitally turn a current on and off that number of times a second. And that's why they're using digital in their advertising, saying rather than something whizzing around physically, they're using a microchip to create an oscillation that will turn the current backwards and forwards 50 times a second to convert it from DC into AC. I think that's what they're getting at. I think you're right, Doc. You've lost me, in fact. I'll just quickly quote partially from the ad here. It says, digital inserted technology uses strong magnets for a more powerful performance of those items, of those appliances. Yeah, if you, turn, if you have a digital supply that's, that's flicking your supply on and off, if you turn the current on and off, you get a changing uh, current, and if you get a changing current, you get a magnetic field. So, therefore, that may be how they're actually creating the magnetic field, by whizzing the current on and off really, really fast, and in that way you get a really powerful magnetic field, and that's what they're using to drive the motor or and, something. And this is less energy. It uses less energy and is obviously more economical. Well, in theory, I mean, it depends what the device is. According it, to the ad, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, it will depend on what the device is because um, you've got, it, you can't argue with the data. If you actually have made measurements and you can prove that it is more efficient, then it's more efficient. Yeah. But if, uh, if, if you're just going by someone's advertising speak and you're concerned about it, you could say, can I please see the evidence that this is, this is the most efficient way of doing this? Thank you so much, Phil Insentuin. Thomas in Hamanskral, hi. Hi, hi, Louie and Dr. Chris, how are you? Good, good. All right, how are you? I'm fine. I just wanted to, uh, Dr. Chris, to explain a bit about the Drake question, uh, the Drake equation, the Morse code, and the semi-paradox. I'll listen on the radio. Right, okay. Okay. Um, the, these are three massive so questions that are all totally different. Okay, to let's, let's so, Thomas, pick uh, one. Pick one that you want to go with. Hello? Yes, Thomas, pick one because it's three big things that you're asking which we won't have time to cover. Which one would you like him to cover? Okay, the Drake equation. Okay, perfect. Doctor? All right, Thomas. The, the Drake equation is one way of making predictions about the likelihood that there is life other than human and Earth-like life out there in the universe. And it basically tries to arrive at a number, a probability that we are not alone out there in the universe. And one way of thinking about this is just purely based on physical numbers, which is, well, how many basically stars like the sun are there? Because we, we know you need a star because that's your power supply. And stars like the sun turn out to be pretty common. So if we look at the universe, or just let's look first of all at our galaxy, the Milky Way, there's probably a 100 
200 billion stars in there. And that's just one galaxy. And a fraction of them, maybe 10%, 20%, 30% might be stars a bit like our sun. We can tell that by looking at their color. And that tells us whether they're a big star, small star, young star, old star, and so on. So we can work out roughly, based on our own galaxy, how many Earth, uh, Earth-like Earth-associated stars there are. And if we assume if they're a bit like our solar system, then they've probably got a clutch of planets, a bit like the Earth, Mars, Mercury, in other words, rocky worlds. And we know that there's about a couple of hundred billion galaxies out there. So you can say, well, there must be hundreds of billions of stars, like the, in fact, billions of billions of stars, a bit like the sun out there. Therefore, there are billions upon billions upon billions of planets, a bit like the Earth, out there. The likelihood of one of them being in the right place relative to its star to have the right temperatures and therefore liquid water and the right chemicals on it that would make life potentially viable there, a bit like it is on Earth, it begins to look pretty high in terms of the odds. And the Drake equation attempts to capture some of these variables and bring them into a physical number May, uh, in terms of how likely that is. But personally, I think it's extremely likely and I think it's very unlikely that we are alone in the universe. All right. Thank you so much for that one. Delia in Johannesburg. Hi. Hello, Lede Bohile. How are you? Good, thanks. And you? Good, thanks. Just a quick question for Dr. Smith. Um, facial warts. What causes facial warts? Hello, Delia. The answer is, if they're genuinely a wart, in other words, a lump arrives on the skin and it grows mm. and gets bigger and it does it in a short mm. space of time, it genuinely mm. is a wart. This is known mm. as a papilloma and it's caused wow. by a virus called the human papilloma virus, HPV. This is a big family of viruses. There's about 50 of them or more in that family and different viruses cause problems in different parts of the body. So there are skin-associated human papillomaviruses, which cause warts in various places, some commonly on the feet, causing verrucas, others on other bits of skin. Some of them will go for your vocal cords and mouth. Others will cause genital injury. So they can cause cervical cancer. They can also cause anal cancers and that kind of thing. So it depends on where on the body they are. But it is a family of viruses, an extensive family of viruses. They are spread by close personal contact they have uh, their mechanism of disease is that once the virus gets into the skin, in order to make the cells a better home for the virus, the virus has various things written into its genetic code that enables it to make the cells grow very fast. And because the cells grow very fast, they're making lots of raw materials that can make lots of new viruses, which is why the cells grow into a big ward. But it has the unsightly effect of making this growth on the skin. The immune system will eventually get rid of it. It will kick in and, and destroy it. But the virus is quite good at outgrowing the effects of the immune system. So it does take a while. And some people seem to have more of a gap in their immune response against this virus, making it harder for the immune system to get rid of it once you've got it. But it, it can go away eventually. The other way to deal with them is if they are unsightly or problematical, then they can actually be burned off. And liquid nitrogen is used in the hands of an experienced dermatologist they can spray a fine series of droplets of liquid nitrogen at minus 200 degrees onto the tissue. This kills the cells that are infected just in the wart and because it freezes them and basically makes them rupture. And this robs the virus of its home and eventually removing the tissue in this way, plus that stimulation to the immune system because it causes inflammation, leads to the root of the wart disappearing and then it goes away.
Does that answer you there, any, Delia? Any prevention one can take. Because I've had you them removed to... already, but they come back mm. again. Mm. Yeah, you have to avoid people who've got them, Delia. You also have to um, get rid of them completely and avoid scratching them and transmitting them because they are an infectious entity. So if you've got them in one place, you can spread them. So it's terribly tempting to pick at them and then touch other things. But the material in the wart is infectious virus, which is how they spread. So it's better to leave them alone and just get someone who's got experience of dealing with them to deal with them and then wash your hands after you've dealt with them. Thank you so much, Delia in Johannesburg. Uh, a question here says, what causes boils specifically on the back of the legs and stomach? Well, a boil is effectively an abscess inside your skin. And very often boils begin as an infected hair follicle. So when the hair comes through the skin, there can be small glands next to it that nourish the hair with oils and also other secretions, including sweat. And because those secretions can sometimes be sticky and oily, the duct that carries the secretions to the skin surface can become clogged and bacteria find their way down into the duct system and they then begin to thrive because it's warm, it's wet, and there's a source of food, the oil, and also dead cells. And the bacteria thriving can eventually reach a threshold point where they begin to break outside of the duct, and they then invade the surrounding tissue, and you get this localised abscess, which is reproducing virus surrounded by an immune response where the body's bringing in big immune populations to try and deal with the problem, and as the cells start to kill the bacteria, they produce pus, the greeny yellow stuff, which is your basically dead immune cells that have killed themselves, detonating themselves, as it were, producing nasty chemicals that will destroy the bacteria. But it does destroy the immune cell in the process. And this builds up into a, a pocket of material in the skin. Usually it will just resolve but sometimes they can become serious. They can also become large. And the best way to, to deal with them is you do an incision and drainage. So what the doctor can do is to make a cut through the middle of the boil and it lays it open. The pus can come out. There's an old saying in medicine, if there's pus about, let it out. It means that then the wound can dry. The material that was feeding the bacteria is removed. The bacteria are removed and then it heals from the base up. So if you do get the odd one, this does happen to some people sometimes. It, if it's self-limiting and it's not getting worse, you can see that the red edge around it isn't spreading. It's probably okay to, to leave it. If it is getting bigger and you're systemically unwell, you should definitely get someone to look at that. If it keeps happening to you again and again and again, more often than you would expect, there might be an underlying problem with the immune system or some other reason why this is occurring and this should be investigated. Um, they're asking if, if they are contagious. The organisms that cause boils uh, include uh, what we call gram-positive bacteria. Staphylococcus aureus is a common cause. Also, the streptococcus family can do it as well. And, and there are some other uh, less common causes as well. So those microbes are transmitted person to person. And the contents of the boil is potentially infectious. So you should avoid touching it with bare skin or damaged skin. You should also not scratch at them and then rub other bits of your body because if you have breaches in your skin elsewhere, you can transfer the bacteria from one place to another. So if you've got a spot, don't pick a spot and then pick another spot because you could transmit the infection from one place to another. Okay, then a question. Mm, I don't know if we have, well, we will have time for this one. Please ask the doctor, what causes a white rash around the penis head? 
Oh, well, there, it depends. Um, sometimes this can be completely normal, and there is something called pearly penile papules. And Sorry? The, these, pearly they're called pearly penile? Pearly penile papules, and this can be completely normal. If this is something that a person's had for a long period of time, it's not changing, and it just appears as, as sort of white marks at the base of the penis head, then that can actually be normal. And uh, there's, there's nothing to worry about. Someone, if you just, it's, it's worth if you've got any kind of new rash, always getting it checked because it may be nothing. You can get reassured very quickly, but if it is something, then you can be treated very quickly as well. So it may well be completely normal, and some people just have this. So it's worth just having someone have a look. But it does sound to me that if it's something you've had for a long time and it's not painful, it's not spreading, it's not red, and you've you've not had any other symptoms, then it's probably pearly penile papules. And they're harmless. Okay. You're, I've never heard of such a term. So a person doesn't need to panic that it's possibly an STI or anything first. They should rather go and consult and triple check. That's that right. The first thing you should do is get checked. Because if you have had exposure to sexual exposure or unsafe sex of any kind, then it's possibly something you've picked up, especially if it's a new thing. If this is something you've had for a really long time, Get the reassurance that it's normal, but don't panic because it probably is something that's absolutely fine. But it's always worth if you have any new symptom, especially if you have a track record of having contact with people who uh, it might be unsafe sex, something like that. Always worth getting it checked just in case. Um, I mean, it's so interesting that all the questions today seem to be medical questions. Somebody's asking about what is what could the cause be of blood coming out right at the end when they urinate? Well, there's a, a range of reasons why that can happen, but they, that definitely is abnormal. And if you are losing blood through the end of the penis, then you definitely are having a problem and you definitely need that to be investigated. But don't fall into the trap of what's called beet urea. There are some people in the population who, for genetic reasons, don't break down the chemical called anthocyanin, which is in beetroot. And we have frequently come across patients who come to their doctor saying I, i'm really worried i'm peeing blood doc and you ask a history from them and you discover that they have a penchant for eating a lot of beetroot which they did and then they notice they peed red and it's because the anthocyanin isn't broken down in their body and because it dissolves in water it goes into the urine and it makes the urine look red making people think they're losing blood but if it isn't that, then there's definitely something abnormal. You should never be peeing blood. And it must be coming from somewhere between the kidney down through the tubes from the kidney to the bladder, from the bladder, and then the tube out to the outside world. One of those structures has to be the source of that bleeding if it's blood. And that needs investigating. Just last week, we were talking about why men don't want to go to the doctor because many are afraid of invasive examinations. But I would encourage all of you who have sent through those questions, go and consult. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. You're welcome.